Well, good morning. How are you? It is good to be here with you today on a rainy Sunday morning, but uh, I tell you, after what Pastor Jonathan said during our time of prayer and then after this music, there's been a great message already preached, hasn't there? Jesus Christ is our hope. It is Advent. Advent means the coming or the arrival. And as people who live in this day and age, we're actually living between two different Advents, the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. So we're in a very unique time in the sense that we're living before, uh, before the second coming of Jesus and yet after the first coming of Christ. And so it's good to be alive in this time because we know that he is Messiah and we look forward to his return. Now we're talking about hope today and I just got back from New York City. New York City's a little crazy this time of year with all the decorations and the crowds and I had the privilege of singing in a few events up there this last weekend and we were staying at this hotel on 53rd and 7th Avenue. And it, the craziest thing, because we, we'd been there for three days and I'm working on this sermon on hope and everything, and I've got hope in my mind. And, and yet, across the street from our hotel, there was this huge structure, and I can't believe I couldn't see that. I never saw this. I, I, in three days, I never saw this. And uh, it, it, it's, it's a structure by a guy named Robert uh, Indiana. It was placed there in 2014 on International Hope Day, and the whole purpose of these structures, you might have seen some around the country with the word love as well, but the whole purpose of these structures, according to Robert Indiana, the man who made this structure, is simply this, because he wants to spread hope. And there it was, right in front of me for three days, and I didn't see it. Hope was right in front of me, and I couldn't see it. It's almost the story of the time of Christ, isn't it? Jesus stood in the midst of all these people, suffered and bled and died on a cross right before their very eyes, rose from the grave, appeared to over 500 people after his resurrection, and yet somehow, some way, so many people missed it. And here we are 2,000 years later, and so many people still miss it. So what is hope? Well all kinds of different definitions, but uh, let me just give you a few that I, I found online that I really enjoy. Hope is that sunshine that sustains us in the darkness of our life. Hope is the light that stays on when everything else has been turned off. I love what Robert Ingersoll said. He said, hope is the only bee that makes honey without a flower. I like that. One of the early church fathers, Tertullian, said it this way, hope is patience with the lamp lit. And I created one of my own. What if I said it this way? Hope is the motel six of virtues. It always leaves the light on. Hmm? One thing is for sure, we cannot live without hope. The truth is, without hope, we won't survive. In 2009, the CDC did a, uh, a survey of a bunch of teenagers, thousands of teenagers, and and they asked teenagers to, teenagers to describe their state of being, their mindset. And you know that 26% of those teenagers actually describes themselves as being sad and hopeless. But in 2021, the CDC repeated that same survey. And this time, the number came back, 44% of the teenagers said they were living in a state of sadness and hopelessness. And 25% of these teenagers said that they contemplated seriously 
the act of suicide in the last year. One in four. That's a scary statistic, isn't it? But the truth is we're living in a society where hope is dwindling. Now there's certain universal benefits to hope, isn't there? Hope is a healer. There's been all kinds of studies by Harvard and everybody else how this mindset of hope actually creates a better life, better social lives, fewer chronic health problems, less depression, less anxiety, and, a, and even a lower risk of cancer simply because you have a hope for the future. Isn't that amazing? But hope's not just a healer, it's a motivator. I mean, look at all the leaders in past who've been dealing with struggles with their nations. Can you imagine one of our leaders getting up and just simply saying on television, well, y'all, <laughs> sorry, it's over. Hope is gone. Can you imagine how depressed that entire society would become? But no, that's not what leaders do. Even in the worst of days, leaders like Winston Churchill would, would deliver a message of hope. Listen to what he told the people of England in the darkest days. He said, hope has returned to the hearts of scores of millions of men and women. And with that, hope there burns the flame of anger against the brutal, corrupt invader. In a dozen famous ancient states now prostrate under the Nazi yoke, the masses of the people await their hour of liberation. That hour will strike, and its solemn peal will proclaim that the night has passed and that the dawn has come. Words of hope from Winston Churchill to a nation that was on the brink of disaster. But there's another hope that is much stronger than any worldly hope we could mention. Even much stronger than the hope that's a motivator and that's a healer. And of course, I'm referring to the hope that we have in Jesus. He is our eternal hope of glory. We just sang the words, hope has a name, it's Jesus. Hope has a face, it's Jesus. So today I wanna to talk to you briefly about how this hope is an anchor for our soul. Will you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6? Hebrews chapter 6. And I'm going to do something a little crazy today that I, that I don't normally do. It, it's just something that I want to do to honor my dad who's watching online right now. Uh, my dad used to do this every sermon. And, uh, and I think it's worthy of doing in this passage simply because we're going to read the entire passage. Uh, would you do me a favor and stand in the honor of the reading of God's Word? Hebrews chapter 6 verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, what are those two things? His promise and his oath. By two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, you may be seated. Did you catch that little phrase? We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Anchors are pretty awesome, aren't they? 
They keep boats from drifting so that when rough water comes about or the storm comes up, the anchor will hold the boat in its place and keep it from drifting too far from the shore. I asked my boys earlier this week, I said, when you think about an anchor, what's the first thing that you think of? And both of them just instantaneously said, oh, that's the Mr. Krabs house. I said, what? Yeah, Mr. Krabs from SpongeBob. He lived in an anchor. So I guess that's important too. The writer of Hebrews gives us this picture of hope being the anchor for our soul. Now, one thing is sure, an anchor that's not connected to a rope or a chain is nothing but a dead weight, isn't it? <laughs> you can throw the anchor in the water, but if it's not connected to a rope, which is connected to the boat, you've just thrown a bunch of metal into the water. It's not going to help you much, right? So I guess in the essence, that anchor is our hope on a rope. I almost named the sermon that, hope on a rope. So today, I want you to look at the chain that's connected to the anchor so that you can walk out of here knowing that this anchor, this hope, is steadfast and sure and is connected to the right vessel, the Lord Jesus. Our hope is the anchor for our soul. Let me give you a few reasons why. First of all, because of his promises that he fulfilled in the past. Now, to really understand Hebrews 6 that we just read about Abraham, you got to go back to the story. And it really starts in Genesis chapter 12 where God makes Abraham this promise of offspring and, a, and, and to become a nation, right? Well, he makes this promise, then nothing happens for a while. And then in between his promise and the oath that he's going to make to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, we have this little moment that happens in Genesis chapter 14 that we seem to sort of just skip on over. And it's a little bit of a long story, so I won't get into the details, but needless to say, it's an important moment in the history, not just of Abraham, but in the history of the Israel nation and in the history of the world. Because there's this little moment where Abraham's nephew, Lot, gets in a little bit of trouble because some kings come over and take over his area. They take Lot as prisoner. And now he's a prisoner of these kings uh, and, 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 and Abraham has to go rescue him. So Abraham takes 318 of his men, goes over, rescues his nephew, Lot, takes a bunch of spoil and plunder from the battle, and he's making his way back to where he lives. And on his way back, he runs into two kings, the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. And the king of Salem's name is Melchizedek. It's the first time you've heard of him. We don't know where he came from. We don't know how his life ended. We don't have any record of his genealogy or nothing. And yet this king of Salem, which means king of peace, blesses Abraham, and Abraham gives Melchizedek 10% of the spoils as a tithe to this king, Melchizedek, who kind of came out of nowhere. Now, I just want you to take that little bit and tuck it in your back pocket for a few minutes while we move on. Genesis chapter 15. Abraham, 15 years later after Genesis chapter 12, where God gives him the promise of offspring, it's 15 years later, and Abraham's a little depressed about this whole thing because he still doesn't have any offspring. And Abraham's an old man by now. And in Genesis chapter 15, you see that, 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 that God comes to Abraham and he says, hey, don't worry, trust me on this. I got you covered. Your offspring's gonna come from you and I'm gonna make you a great nation. And Abraham says, well, I don't see that happening, God. How's that gonna happen? So God says, come here. And takes him outside of his tent and tells him, look up. 
Look towards heaven, Genesis chapter 15, verse 5 says, and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he says to him this, so shall your offspring be. And then the Bible says in verse 6 that Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. You know what? Sometimes you just got to go outside and be reminded of the greatness of God, don't you? Have you ever tried to number the stars? You know, the amount of stars visible from any one location on a nice rural area where there's not a lot of city lights is about 2,000. I live out in Good. It's a good place. And I enjoy living there. And we have these beautiful sunsets and these beautiful clear nights because there's not a lot of city lights to be seen. So on a clear night, you can see roughly, scientists tell us, about 2,000 stars. Well, if you just take a little pair of binoculars, that number immediately jumps to 6,000 stars. But if you get a two-inch telescope, that number then jumps to over 100,000 stars. Now, if you take a six-inch wide telescope, now you can literally see upwards of not just stars, but galaxies, up to 100,000 different galaxies, all of which contain at least 100 billion stars. And then recently, the James Webb Telescope, which was launched, by the way, last Christmas Day, 2021 Christmas Day, they launched this James Webb Telescope. Many of you saw President Biden as he got online and showed us the first photos that came back from this. This is one of the photos that came back from the James Webb Telescope. Now, what you're looking at here is known as James Webb's first deep field. This is the image of galaxy cluster SMACS0723. I think that's a pretty flashy name, don't you? And it's overflowing with details. Look at this. Now, you see those front lights, those ones in the middle? Those are stars. But all those little things in the background, guess what those are? Galaxies. Galaxies. Including the very faintest objects that have ever been observed by an infrared camera. And, 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 and we're seeing this for the first time thanks to the James Webb's telescope. But here's the really amazing thing to me. That little picture right there. That little slice of this massive, vast universe covers a patch of sky approximately the same size as if you were to hold a grain of sand up to the sky and look at that sand. That's what you're looking at right there, a tiny little speck of what the universe has to offer. And God says to Abraham, hey, look up. You see that? I got you covered, son. Wow. What a promise God made to Abraham. What a covenant God makes with Abraham. God is a keeper of promises, right? And you know what? There's over 30, 332 messages or passages in the Old Testament that scholars recognize as prophecies of the first coming of Christ, the first advent. Many of these have to do specifically with his birth, where he was going to be born, when he was going to be born, all the things that had to happen before he was born. And do you know that if one person was to just fulfill 48 of those 332 prophecies, that it would have to, it would, it's the probability of 1 in 10 to the 57th power. That's the probability of one person just fulfilling 48 of the 332 prophecies. And yet Jesus fulfilled them all. Why? Because Jesus wrote them all. Jesus has always been. Don't ever forget that. He is the Word. John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. 
Jesus fulfilled his own prophecies. So our hope is the anchor for our soul because of the promises Jesus fulfilled in the past. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace when fears are stilled, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. And we can stand confidently because of the promises Jesus fulfilled in the past. He fulfilled them all. But you know what? We also have this hope as an anchor for our soul because of the promises Jesus fulfills in the future. Did you know, and this is according to Dr. Jeremiah, who I've worked with for many, many years. He's a Bible scholar, and I trust him implicitly. He said that after years of study, he has determined that there are at least 1,845 biblical references to his second coming, the second advent. The Bible mentions the second coming of Christ more times than the first coming of Christ. In fact, over five times more. Can you believe that? And, and, and his second coming is mentioned in 17 books in the Old Testament and in 23 out of 27 books in the New Testament. In the New Testament, out one out of every 30 verses teaches us that Jesus Christ is coming back. Now, if Jesus fulfilled all 332 prophecies about his first coming, don't you reckon he's probably going to go ahead and do a fulfillment of the other 1,845 prophecies about his second coming? Sure. And that should give you hope today, biblical hope, hope that's unshakable and, and confident that one day he's going to come and, and take us out of this mess. What is hope if it's not looking towards what is to come, right? I'll never forget when I read the story of James Stockdale. He was a Vietnam pilot for America, and he was shot down over Vietnam, and he landed in a village by parachute, was immediately taken captive, and for seven years he survived as a POW in this infamous hotel called the Hanoi Hotel. It wasn't a hotel, it was a prison where he was repeatedly tortured and he was denied medical attention. And he lived for seven years confined in a cell with no windows that was three feet by nine feet for seven years. And when it was asked of him how he was able to survive such a horrific experience, he replied with just 10 words. I never lost hope in the end of the story. Mm. Keep holding on to hope, folks, because we know how the end of the story is. We know how the story ends. We have victory. We just sang about it. So we all have certain things we hope for. Maybe it's a Christmas gift. Maybe it's one of you singles are looking for it and hoping out, you know, hoping that some one of these guys that you got your eyes on is going to ask you out on a date or something. Or maybe you're asking, you're looking to ask a girl out and you're just hoping she says yes. Maybe some of you married women are just hoping your husband takes you on a date after 15 years. I don't know. I don't know what you're hoping for. But I know this, there's a difference between regular hope and biblical hope. Regular hope is a desire for something good to happen for the future, but you have no idea how it actually will happen. So it's sort of this uneducated, iffy expectation, right? It's like when I watch the Cowboys games live. I always hope they win, but even if we have a lead going into the, 14, into the fourth quarter by 14 points like we did against Green Bay three weeks ago, my hope is shaky at best. 
right? And the sad truth is that many people really do lose hope, not just over little football games, but in life itself. Maybe you're here today and, and you feel like your life is hopeless. Well, I just want you to listen closely this morning because you can have a hope that is steadfast and it is sure. It's a hope that's an anchor for your soul. And it's not just hope that we need. It's the object of our hope that makes all the difference. Because you see, biblical hope not only desires something good for the future, but it also expects it to happen. Biblical hope is an educated expectation based on the promises of God. And the promises of God are always fulfilled. So it's kind of like this. I don't know how to have hope when I'm watching the Cowboys live, but when I tape the games and I find out who won before I watch the game, well now I've got an educated hope because you see, if they lose, I'm not gonna watch the game. But if they won, I'm gonna have the greatest time ever watching that game. I'm gonna get my popcorn, I'm gonna get me some Coke Zero, I'm gonna lay back in that recliner, and I'm just gonna watch. And here's the best part, no matter what happens that goes badly, turnovers, missed tackles, whatever it might be, I know that in the end, we're gonna win. So I just can't wait to see how we do it, but I know we're gonna do it, because I've already seen the score at the end. I know the result, right? My hope is no longer shaky, it's sure. And that's the hope that Jesus gives us. It's the kind of hope that will give you the strength and will help you get back up after you've fallen a thousand times. Hope that is anchored in the promises of Christ will give you confidence to handle whatever comes your way because you have this internal peace. I'll give you one more example. My wife called me the other day and I was out on the road somewhere and she goes, well, the power went out. I was like, oh, great. And you know, living in Goud, that's what happens, a lot. We've lived in our new house there for six months and the power's gone out four times. And so we knew when we built the house, we needed this thing called a generator, a gas-powered generator. And by the way, those suckers are expensive. I had no idea how much this thing would cost. But you know what? The power went out, I'm out of town, and I said, well, what are you going to do? You're just going to go to the hotel, a hotel or call a friend or something, go stay there? She goes, no, duh. <laughs> My wife has such a way of... <laughs> but she says, no, we, we have that generator. It's gas-powered. And then she said something, and it struck me. She said, it's a gas-powered generator, Charles. So what's happening out there does not have any effect on what's happening in here. What a picture of hope, biblical hope. So we have this hope that is an anchor for our soul. Why? Because of the promise that were filled in the past and promises of Jesus that will be fulfilled in the future. Hope is the anchor for our soul, not just because we have promises that will and have already been fulfilled. But let me give you one more. This is where I get real excited. Hope is the anchor for our soul because we have access into his presence. 
He came and dwelt among us. He isn't some mystical character. He actually was here. John chapter one, verse 14. I quoted the first part of that chapter a little bit earlier. Let me quote the second part. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This is the story of Christmas, isn't it? Mankind standing face to face with God in the flesh. Mary holding the hope of heaven in her arms. And Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe. This gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. Here he was in the flesh. And that sweet newborn baby grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And and in fulfillment of all the prophecies, he ended up in a kangaroo court, condemned to death as an innocent man, and was there that he suffered and bled and died for the sin of the world, including your sin and mine. But as you know, that story doesn't end there, does it? On the third day, Jesus rose from the grave. What's the song say? There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day. Up from the grave he arose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. First Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We just sing about that. And because he was present with us and conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave, he's given us this opportunity now to dwell in his presence. And you might say, well, where, where do we do that? Right here. When? How about right now? You see, we have this gift from God that gives us access into his presence. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. He talks about in chapter 4 about this issue of justification, how because of what Christ did on the cross, you and I can stand before him justified. And then in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, he says these words, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Not a feeling, but a fact. And by the way, peace with God will bring you the peace of God. And we have this peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access into this grace in which we stand. Access, that word gives us the picture of one who uh, has access to the king, bringing another who does not have access to the king into his presence, properly groomed and properly dressed. Folks, the truth is we're not worthy to be in his presence. We're just not. We're sinful beings. But because of what Jesus did, Christ sees us through the eyes of his own son, through the blood of his own son, through the sacrifice of his own son. And because he sees us through what Jesus did on the cross, he sees us as righteous and justified. Not because of anything you and I have done, but because of what Jesus did on the cross. Do you see the significance of that? It gives us access to God where before it just was not possible. No one had access to God in the time of Christ. But at the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, access became 
available. I love how my dad puts it. He says, as children of the king, we can run boldly into the throne room without even knocking on the door. And then you get to the last part of this passage in Hebrews chapter 6 where it gets really good. He says this, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Behind the curtain, what's that a reference to? It's a reference to the temple curtain that stood in Herod's temple in his day. Remember, they had rebuilt the temple from the time of Solomon. And every year, actually daily there were sacrifices being made, but every year on this day called Yom Kippur, it was a big day because people would bring uh, their sacrifices, but more importantly, the high priest, the, the highest priest of all, would stand there at the front of the temple and he would slaughter a goat and they would take the blood of that goat and he would carry that blood through the outer cord into the inner cord and then behind this massive curtain, which was 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide and four inches thick, he would carry this blood of the goat through that curtain into the other side, into what was known as the Holy of Holies. And he would be wearing these very special garments, and at the bottom of these garments were bells. And the reason there were bells is because if the life of the priest wasn't just right, or if he wasn't right before God, he would fall dead in the presence of God right there on the spot. So I can just imagine they put a little sign outside there. If the bells aren't ringing, the priest ain't breathing. Something like that because it was a serious deal. He would go into this holy of holies, and if he wasn't right with the Lord, he would drop dead on the spot. But then something happened. On the point of death of Jesus on the cross, across town in the temple, about 700 yards away, this veil tore from top to bottom in the middle of an earthquake. Now the reason it's from top to bottom is very significant because nobody, no mankind could tear this veil. It took 300 priests to just move it. It was huge. And at the point of this earthquake, God tore that veil from top to bottom, ripped it wide open. In other words, God was saying, hey, because of what my son did on the cross for you, the door's open now, come on in. We have access into his presence. Mm. Because of Jesus, you are now seen through the eyes of God, through the blood of his son, as forgiven, saved, cleansed, righteous, worthy, and justified. A great definition for that word is just as if I'd never sinned. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. A forerunner. That's the word prodromos. It gives us the picture of not just soldiers that would go in front of the army and the Roman armies, that's what they called their, their scouts, prodromos. But it's also another meaning for little boats. In this day and age, we call them tugboats. But these boats would come alongside of the big ships that would come into the harbors in, 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 in the Roman days. And they would actually place the anchor of the big ship into the little ship, and then they would row that little ship into the harbor and place the anchor in the water attached to something firm so that then they could slowly and steadily bring the big ship into the harbor safely and securely. That's the word that the writer of Hebrews uses when he says Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. It gives us the picture of us being the boat, 
of hope being the anchor and Jesus being the foundation upon which the anchor is holding to. I love that. And then the last phrase, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now you know I'm an amateur preacher when I got three minutes left and I'm gonna try to tackle the order of Melchizedek. What kind of dummy does that? Well, in just a few sentences, let me sum it up for you. What is the order of Melchizedek? Do you remember when I mentioned earlier this morning in Genesis chapter 14, this strange out of nowhere king who is also known as righteous? In fact, the word Melchizedek means king of righteousness, who's also the king of Salem. Do you know what Salem means? Peace. As king of peace, do you realize that the area of that town, that village where he was king, was Salem, which is the Hebrew word for shalom, and that same area later became known as Yerushalom, the place of peace, Jerusalem. This is the man right here, who 2,000 years before Christ offers a blessing to Abraham, blesses him, receives a tithe from Abraham. Now, why is that? Because the lesser always ties to the greater. The greater always blesses the lesser. In other words, Abraham recognized the greatness of Melchizedek. Then we don't hear about him for another thousand years, and then out of nowhere, David mentions this in Psalm 110.4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What's the order we're talking about here? Well, the order is in reference to how the priest made these sacrifices in front of the temple. You see, all sacrifices, all priesthood came through this tribe of Levi. Jesus doesn't come from the tribe of Levi. He comes from the tribe of Judah. And if you will take the time this afternoon a little homework here, read the seventh chapter of Hebrews, you will see a great explanation of this order of Melchizedek, and you will discover that Melchizedek is a typology of Jesus. It's, it, 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 it's, or maybe it had been Christ himself. Some scholars think it might have been, but even so, Melchizedek gives us a picture of how Christ transcends the law and how he is an eternal high priest, not one who operates in the traditional of the Levitical order. Listen to this verse in Hebrews chapter 7. He has no need like those high priests to offer da daily sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has made perfect forever. What God is simply saying is this, there is a new order now. Gone are the necessary sacrifices of the Levitical priests. I have provided the ultimate sacrifice in my son Jesus. And like Melchizedek, he has no beginning and no end. He is the beginning and he is the end. Jesus is the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, and he will reign forever. So if you'll trust him, he will go as a forerunner for you into my presence and be your representative to intercede on your behalf. He took the punishment that you deserve and now he reigns as great high priest and king of righteousness and king of peace forevermore. Now, as we close today, I just want you to picture this with me because some of that is a lot of some deep stuff and I know that it takes a lot of Bible study and a lot of reading to really grasp hold of that. So I think you'll grasp this if you haven't caught anything yet. Let's just imagine all of us are in a giant courtroom and we're all on trial. Every one of us are guilty of a terrible crime. No doubt about it, we know we're guilty and we're about to be sentenced to die. But we have this defense attorney 
who just so happens to be the son of the judge. And because he's the judge's son, he has this unique opportunity to approach the bench. And as he approaches the bench, the judge tells him the only way to buy forgiveness for them is that you'll have to die in your place. To which the son says, I'll do it. So the son pays the debt he didn't owe, and he pays it with his own life. And you and I, as the guilty party, are reaping the benefit that we didn't earn. We got set free because of what the son did. So the son's sacrifice justified our innocent verdict. And the judge set us free because of what the son did for us. Here's the moral of the story. Take Jesus as your lawyer. He transcends the law and bought your grace. And the next day I can just picture the headline in the papers reading this. Sinner pardoned goes to live with the judge. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Hope is alive. Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, high priest of heaven, lion of Judah and sacrificial lamb, his presence is here. May his promises and his very presence give you real hope today. And if you'll hold on to that hope that only Jesus can give you, it will become a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul. Would you bow your heads with me, please? In the quietness of this moment, I just want to remind you that hope is alive and Jesus is the only hope you've got. And if you've come here today, can we rejoice in the fact that you're here for a reason? Maybe you've never been in church before. Maybe you came with a friend. Maybe you've tried everything you can to find hope and it's all failing. Can I just tell you, look no further than Jesus. He's the only hope you've got. So surrender your life to him. He'll forgive you. He'll save you. He'll rescue you. And he'll change you forever. Do you know Jesus? If you don't, would you come and meet him? Look, you don't have to know a bunch of scripture. You don't have to be a member of a church anywhere. Just come take one of these pastors by the hand and say simply, hey, I'm, I'm hopeless. I need hope. I need Jesus. We would love to introduce you to the hope of Christ. But for those of you here in this room, and you know this is true, then maybe the Lord is convicting you because we're living in this hopeless world and yet we don't do enough to share the hope of Christ with others. Maybe it's something as simple as a splat gun. Or maybe it's something like walking over to your neighbor's house and sitting down and having some coffee with them and just explaining the hope of Christ. I don't know. All I know is without the hope of Christ, we're doomed. We're doomed. So without any further delay, would you stand to your feet? This altar is open. And if you need to come 
come now as we begin to sing the hymn that I was quoting earlier. Let's just sing it together. And as we do, let's celebrate the hope of Christ. But if you're looking for hope and you don't know Jesus, come now. Let's sing together. Because truth is, folks, I feel like even though we have the victory and the hope of Christ in us, sometimes we live as though we don't. Can I just encourage you this week to live a life that is filled with hope and confidence, sure confidence that the one we sing about and the one we praise and the one who changed our lives really is the the, the reason you can have joy in your life. We're talking about hope, peace, love, and joy for the next four weeks. It is the story of Christmas, and it's the story of the Advent. But I want you to sing this last verse like you really mean it, and like you really do have this hope inside of you, and then live the rest of your week like that, all right? Come on, let's sing that last verse as we close the service together. Come on. No kills in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. power of Christ. Stand for Him. Live for Him. Live this hope that we sing about. And as you leave, make sure you stop by that living, that Christmas tree out there and uh, grab one of those pieces of paper that has a list of these precious ones that need something. Uh, you're going to need to help them and we need your help in helping them. So grab that, alright? God bless you as you go.